And we are in the book of Acts, chapter 19, and verses 11 through 20. So Acts, chapter 19, verses 11 through 20, and it reads this way. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to involve the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Well, all summer long, we've been going through uh, the book of Acts and looking at how uh, the church started from just a small group of people in one city in the world, Jerusalem, to like a worldwide movement within 20, 30 years. It's really stunning when you think about it the incredible growth of the church through the book of Acts. Um, and as we've gone through this, this series, you might have noticed like we've kind of repeatedly skipped over something. There's been something that's been in a lot of the passages we've looked at, we, we, we haven't really talked about it with um, any, uh, any kind of depth, something that whether you're skeptical, you're not a Christian, you are a Christian, um, you probably read and it's like, it's just jumped out at you, like that's weird. Um, and it's all over Acts. And it's, it's really all over Acts 19, and it's at the heart of Acts 19. And we're going to talk about it this morning. And it's, this thing we've been skipping is, is the demonic. Supernatural, personal evil. And even though he's not in the passage here, uh, the idea of, of a devil, of Satan. This morning, I, I don't want to skip over those, those things. I want to talk about those things. And I know it's weird. I know those things are strange to, to our ears, and you might wonder, like, how in the world can, can we, a church in a modern age, or you, a person, you know, who's of maybe reasonable intelligence, how can you talk about demons, you know, devils, those sorts of things with a straight face? Um, and my, if that's your question, that's a good question, it's a fair question, and my, my question back to you is, what if, what if the movie The Usual Suspects is right? It's okay if you haven't seen it. In fact, maybe you shouldn't have seen it. Um, but it's a cult classic movie. It's from 1995. Uh, Kevin Spacey won a Best Oscar, although maybe that's not a reason to uh, up the quality of the movie at this point. Um, but it has the best movie ending of any movie I've ever seen in my life. And there's not even a close second. It's the best movie ending of all time. And here, the, end, the movie ends with this line. The greatest trick the devil ever, ever pulled is to convince the world he doesn't exist. And for the entire movie, you don't know, but there's actually evil right in front of you. Incredibly deep, complex evil is staring you in the face. You have no idea. 
you're completely tricked for the entire movie until the end, and that line comes out. Maybe the greatest trick the devil has ever pulled is to convince the world he doesn't exist. And I would just say, if, if you think uh, demons or devils are like just ridiculous, what if our culture's dismissal of a personal supernatural evil is because we've been tricked? What if that is the greatest trick the devil has ever pulled, and he's pulled it on an entire culture of people to convince these things shouldn't be taken seriously, we shouldn't listen to this idea, this is just stupid. This morning I want to walk through Acts 19 and let it be a guide to, to what, what the Bible means with super, when it talks about supernatural personal evil. And as a church, how we should expect to encounter personal supernatural evil. And what's interesting is Acts 19 is the complete opposite culture of us. Ephesus, the city that Acts 19 is about, is the complete opposite of our culture. Ephesus, uh, whereas like, we're like very deeply skeptical of, supernat- of the supernatural, of especially like devils or demons, Ephesus was like overly obsessed with the supernatural and overly obsessed with kind of the occult and like magic and these sorts of things. And so our two cultures are going to collide. And as they collide, kind of three ideas I want to pull out from Acts 19 and talk about this morning. First is, is the empty seduction of evil. Second is the complexity of evil. And thirdly is the triumph over evil. So first, the, the empty seduction of, of evil. And one thing that, that I hope you notice as we've gone through the book of Acts is when the, the gospel lands in different cities, when a church is planted in different cities, depending on like that city's culture, the, what's preached or the way the church operates is different because it's going to land in that particular culture. So, for example, a couple weeks ago we looked at the city of Ephesus, which was sort of the intellectual capital of the day. It's where all the philosophers taught. It's where all the universities were. And so the, when the gospel ends there, Paul gets up and preaches, and he preaches a very intellectually dense philosophical sermon to this city because he's speaking to philosophers. In the next chapter, in Acts 18, when the gospel lands in the city of Corinth, uh, it's very different. Corinth was more like Las Vegas. It was like the sailor capital of the world. It was basically what Vegas is today. And so when Paul writes to the Corinthians in First and Second Corinthians, he talks a lot about, about pleasure, about, um, about sexuality, those sorts of things, because that was deeply relevant to Corinth. And now in here in Ephesus, in Acts 19, like the same thing is going to happen again in that the Ephesus was like considered kind of the magic capital of the world. Like if, you, if you're going to do spells or get into the occult, you went to Ephesus. And so even to this day, we have scrolls in museums that came from Ephesus of spells and incantations and ways people would call upon spirits or magic in order to make things happen in, in Ephesus. And so that's why it shouldn't surprise us that when the gospel lands in Ephesus, all sorts of like strange, weird, supernatural things are going on because that's the way the city thought about the world. And that's the way the gospel would get, get into um, Ephesus. But even though, that, even though that's true, what, what, I, what I want us to remember is that the person who writes the book of Act, it, Acts is a doctor, is a medical doctor, Luke. Um, which means like he saw the world scientifically. He operated in the world scientifically. And, and when you get into some of the strangeness of Acts 19, I think the best way to read some of what Naya read and some of what uh, we'll look at later is actually with like intentional irony and humor and comedy. Like Luke knows what's happening is weird. Right? He's, not, he's not telling the story with a straight face, like this is all normal stuff. He doesn't think, that he's a doctor, he doesn't do that. And, and, and two examples, two kind of, like, I think what actually is, could be considered comedy within Acts 19 as Luke tells the story. First is uh, verses 11 and 12 in Acts 19. It says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by Paul, 
so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Now Paul, remember, was a tent maker, a leather maker, which meant, like, as he worked, and as he did that work, he would have had, like, sweaty, smelly, nasty aprons. And what Luke is saying is that those aprons, people would take them to sick people or to people who had demons, and they, like, they would heal people and cast demons out, like the dirty, nasty aprons. Or like a handkerchief that Paul had blowed his nose into, like, went and they touched sick people with it, and the sick people got healed. Right? Now, every, like, medical professional in this room is like, that, you don't do that. That's weird. And that's gross. Remember, Luke is a medical professional. He knows this is weird. He knows this is absurd. And the best parallel I can come up with is uh, for a couple months before I went to college, I worked at Pizza Hut. And, uh, and, and it was basically to make as much money as I could. And Pizza Hut, uh, after working at Pizza Hut for two months, I will never eat Pizza Hut ever again for the rest of my life. Um, no, no matter how much I like pizza, because of the way my, my work clothes smelled. They smelled like sweat. They smelled like uh, cheese. Like they, we sprayed this buttery stuff on all the crusts. And it's like, it was just gross. And that's what, that's what my apron smelled like. And I never once, like if I had a rash, like, you know, if I just rub my apron on that rash, like it's going to come right out. Like I didn't go, I didn't see a sick baby and go like, let me just smother your baby in my apron and it'll be healed. Like I didn't do that. That's weird. And, and Luke, who is a doctor, knows what is happening is, is strange. It's absurd. So why? Why is this happening? Because the city of Ephesus, they're, they're obsessed with supernatural power. And they all have spells and incantations which they think are going to cast out demons and heal sicknesses. And God is confronting the Ephesians on their terms. And he's saying, you, like, you got all these spells, you got all these incantations. All of your spells and incantations have no power when you compare them to what my servants blow their nose in. To my servants' dirty aprons. Right? There's no, my power is so much greater than your power What's the, what's the dirtiest part of my movement, the church, is, has more healing force than all your spells and all your incantations. So that's the first thing that happens. It's just weird, strange, and I think like some comedy. Second uh, is, is what happens next in verses 13 through 16, where people, they, they begin to catch wind of like, Jesus, this name has some power. The church has some power. And so they, they say, all right, let's, let's start using the name of Jesus instead of our spells or incantations. And so there are these... Uh, these well-known healers, and the reason why they, we probably, they were probably well-known within Ephesus is because Luke names them. Um, but the, these healers called the sons of Sceva who decide, like they encounter a demon and they're like, we're not Christians, we don't believe in Jesus, we're not a part of the church, but this name Jesus has a whole lot of power into it. So we're going we're gonna to use the name Jesus to do our miracle tricks, right? To further our business, because uh, this would have been a business, this would have been a, a profession that people had. To further our profession, we're going, to name, we're going to use the name of Jesus. So they go up to this demon and they say, we cast you out in the name of Jesus, the seven sons of Sceva. And here's what happens. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Right? Probably in more ways than one. This is, this is weird, like intentionally absurd stuff. But loose comedy and, and the irony he puts out here is it has, an, it has an intentional point. 
And the point comes in verses 18 and 19. When people begin to see this, and they begin to see these supernatural encounters, the supernatural power by the church and by the name of Jesus, here's what happens. It says, Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So what happens is these Ephesians, some of whom were Christians, but continued practicing these these spells and these incantations on the side, they come and they repent of, of, of trying to use supernatural powers to do their work outside of Jesus. And there are other people in Ephesus who have become Christians and have recognized that now that they're Christians, they can't keep doing their spells and their incantations and, and working with the occult. They come and they, they bring all of their spell books, all of their incantations, and they throw them into a fire and burn them up. And what's important for us, I think, to to take away from that is that what we're told by Luke is that the total value of the books that were burned up is about 50,000 pieces of silver. In modern day money, that's about $6 million. Imagine our church later this afternoon having a bonfire and just lighting $6 million on fire. Now, why does that happen? One thing you have to remember is that these these weren't just like hobbies on the side like this was their profession their profession they were spell casters they were they, like this was a way of making money this was a way of, of getting notoriety and and they had come to the conclusion that these things they had invested immense amount of resources into were completely worthless when compared to the the worth of knowing Jesus of having Jesus and one reason why I I find the idea of a personal, supernatural evil compelling. Why I don't have any trouble believing in a Satan or demons, devils, those sorts of things, is that I, I have never stopped been, being blown away by the immense propensity human beings have to devote massive amounts of energy and resources and time and attention and passion to things that are worthless. Things that if we had just the right perspective for a moment, we would see they, they're just going to burn up and like they're worthless. They don't bring me any value. The what, in, what in your own life have you devoted incredible energy to? Spent lots of money on maybe even. Only to realize later that it, it gave you nothing. It had no power in it. And that's how it works. It's worked on all of us, every human being. We empty ourselves out for something, hoping that it will fill us back up, but it doesn't. And that's how addiction works, to alcohol, to food, to the approval of others, to advancement in career, to sexuality or other pleasure. We empty ourselves out, hoping to be filled, only to be left holding nothing or something with no power to save. And so C.S. Lewis, he has this book uh, called The Screwtail Letters. Uh, C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. And this book, it's sort of a hypothetical. Lewis sort of plays it being a demonic character who's writing to another demon who's tempting this guy to not be a Christian. And he has this powerful description of this is how supernatural personal evil works on empty seduction, getting you to give yourself to something that ultimately will give you nothing back. Here is what Lewis writes. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. It's more certain and it's better style to get the man's soul and give him nothing 
in return. The what in your life have you, get, have you given your soul to and gotten nothing back? Is it your career, your job, a friendship, a relationship? What have you, what have you invested enormous resources in? I mean, some, like literally, just look at your bank account. What have you spent a lot of money on? Has it given you what it promised? This is why I think we need to take personal supernatural evil incredibly seriously. And it's not because I think there's a devil behind every temptation. That's not true. And, and even, I would say, neuroscience has, has really helped us with how addiction works. And there's lots of good science around that. So this is not all about demonic, you know. So like there's, there's a complexity there that's, that's, that, that we need to, to think through and, and wrestle through. And yet, like, as a pastor, it, I never stop being blown away at how much people will pour out for something that gives them nothing back. How they'll enter into willingly a lifestyle they know is ruining them and their family and they can't stop. And what we see for a moment in Ephesus is that people see Jesus for who he is and they see their life for what it is and they're willing to burn it all up. I mean, six million dollars, that's incredible. And they do so willingly and and wantingly because they see the power of Jesus to free them from this empty life. So personal supernatural evil, it runs on empty seduction. It, it convinces us to empty ourselves out, out hoping to be filled, but, but making us give our souls for nothing in return. So that, that's what happens first in the story. Point two, then, is the complexity of, of evil. In Ephesus, it wasn't just known for being like the magic capital of the world. It was also known because it had a really big tourist attraction, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world called the Temple of Artemis. And Artemis was a, a, a Greek goddess, and, and her temple, the temple in Ephesus, it was huge. I mean, many of us, you may, you've seen pictures of the Greek Parthenon. That's kind of the one temple we have left standing um, from this day and age. Well, the temple to Artemis was four times bigger than the Parthenon. It was built on 127 pillars, 60 foot high. All of the great sculptors of the day uh, made sculptures in the temple. It was like, it was just massive work of arts, this massive tourist attraction. It was the pride of the city of, of Ephesus. And so we're all left wondering, well, who's Artemis? What is that, you know, is she, what kind of goddess was she? And, and what's important for us to remember is that, you know, worshiping Artemis at her temple is not quite the same as, as like worshiping Jesus in our church today. That religion in that day was a little bit more intertwined into all of life. And so Artemis wasn't just a temple, she was, she was kind of the money goddess. She was the banking goddess. Um, she was the, the goddess of the economy. And so if you wanted a good job, like Artemis is who you went and you prayed too. And, and, and so what that meant was that Artemis and the economy were completely linked to one another in Ephesus. Which explains what happens next in a part, a part of the story Naya didn't read for us later on in Acts 19. Um, but what happens is the church grows rapidly, right? All these people come, they burn their schools, the name of Jesus is powerful all through the city. People start being converted, the church grows. And what happened is as people become Christians is they, they stopped doing what everyone did at the Artemis temple, which is buy a little silver idol. And so all of a sudden, no one's buying, like very few people are buying these silver idols anymore. And the economy of Ephesus just completely tanks. Demetrius, then, uh, a local union leader of the silversmiths in Ephesus, he sees what is happening and he gets terrified and he starts ginning up support to like put down the church because they're not buying these idols anymore. And some commentators even think that actually uh, what's happening in Acts 19 was, was a yearly festival called uh, I love this. I don't know if this is real or not, but it's, it's, if it's, it's too good not to be made up. Um, but it's uh, they, like a festival called Artemisia, right? Like, so like Boulevardia, 
but less fun with Artemis instead. Um, Artemisia, like that, this is an event that happened yearly. And, and so it was a major moment in the economy of Ephesus. And what's happened now is no one's buying idols, or very few people are buying idols. And this big moment of the year for these salesmen, for these, these uh, silversmiths, is getting, the economy's being tanked, it's being wrecked. So Demetrius gets up as many people as he can, probably uh, several thousand people. They go into the, the theater at Ephesus, which could hold as many as 20,000 people. And they start a riot against the church because the church is ruining the economy of Ephesus. They're defacing the temple of Artemis, this great pride of the city, this tourist attraction. And, uh, and we need to stop them, essentially, is what Demetrius says. And again, Luke, as he tells this story, he kind of lays out some comedy for us. He, this is how he reports the scene in this theater as people are, uh, are rioting or are, are protesting. Uh, Acts 19, verse 32. It says, Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. This feels like a typical political gathering, right? Like people just kind of yelling. No one knows why they're there. No one knows what's happening. Everyone's just angry. And that's what's, everyone's there at the theater, just mad, not sure why they're there, not sure what's happening. And, and, and back away from the kind of the absurdity of all that's taking place here. And what Luke is actually painting a really important picture of what happens whenever, whenever Jesus starts making a dent into a city, whenever like a gospel church is planted and begins to grow in the city. And typically, I think when we think of church growth, we think of like individual people and individual conversions. And we preach the gospel to individuals and individuals become Christians. And as individuals become Christians, the church grows. And that's really important. We should think about church that that way. But what what Ephesus shows us, what Luke shows us in the end of Acts 19, is that there are citywide, very complex reasons for why people resist the gospel. And why people don't just actually just resist the gospel, but actually actively oppose and hate the church. And think of it like this. Let's say tomorrow, Kansas City just saw mass conversions. You know, tons of people become deeply committed Christians. How would our city change? Like, what parts of our city economy would just go away overnight? What businesses would, like, find themselves suddenly with, with no customers? I think it's, it's really easy for us maybe to look at Ephesus as uh, kind of modern people and say, well, gosh, you know, little silver t- idols aren't real. And, you know, people shouldn't have bought those things. And they should find other things to spend their time on. So it's, it's sort of easy for us to, to look at Ephesus and pass judgment on them. But what if the reverse happened? What if an Ephesian Christian came to Kansas City and walked around Kansas City, walked around Johnson County? What, what temples would they find? What if our city, the way we operate, would be threatened, that they would see, that maybe we don't see? As campus pastors, we decided, let's do that thought experiment this week. And so we actually, we emailed a few of our global partners who work with American culture, work with American churches, but are, are from another place. So they're like, they're like Ephesian Christians peering in on our temples and our idols and our way of operating. And we just asked them, like, what, you know, what citywide resistance do you see to the gospel? What's the, the complexity of how you see just American culture pushed back against the gospel, the church, Christianity. And here's some of the answers we got from, not, from Christians outside of the American context, looking at our city, at our temples, and, and here's what they say. Here's what they had to say to us. Uh, first, there's a desire to be independent and self-sufficient, and this makes people lonely. Isolated yet in a community and self-centered. 
Second, there's a, there's a feeling of freedom and wealth, yet there seems to be a hunger and a never-growing uh, need to upgrade and change status according to motor fashion. This may be to, due to media, peer pressure, or neighborhood comparisons. Three, some people I met didn't even want to be helped even when they looked desperate. Uh, fourth and last, people in our culture spend significant time with other Christians and community and at church. Uh, Christians in America are at only around Christians a couple times a month. So I know I'm meddling, I know. But I, like this landed for me. And, and as they see our culture, they see American culture, what they find is individualism at the expense of community. An unwillingness to admit weakness, dependence, an obsession with wealth and status and appearance, and calendars that leave little time for Christian discipleship or community. All of these things are baked into our culture of Kansas City. And all of these things make being a Christian much more difficult than what what it would be otherwise, and they're all unseen. Just like Artemis in Ephesus. Until people became deeply committed Christians, no one had any idea what that would mean for the idol factory, the economy in the city. But once people began following Jesus with sincerity and passion, it it ruined an entire part of an economy. And listen, I, I know I'm meddling, but I believe the greatest threat to following Jesus for us in Johnson County is not like an evil demon convincing you to go do some you know, murderous thing later today or do something really evil later today. It's, it's more subtle than that. It's the thousand little decisions we make to schedule our families to the brink, to find ourselves increasingly not surrounded by church community or Christian community, to increasingly find that our kids excel at academics and athletics, but they don't know Jesus. To find that you're financially secure for your 70s, but your soul is starving and empty. It's a thousand little decisions, all of them good. They make sense. They're the right in the moment. But when you add them up. C.S. Lewis explains uh, this idea kind of in this way in the screw tape letters, which has always been really compelling for me and made me be on guard as I, as I think about my own life and direction. He writes this, he says, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. It's a thousand little decisions where we make, uh, we build our, our structures of our lives not on prayer, but not on the gospel, not on following Jesus, but we build the structure of our lives with the expectations of the city that they have for us or our kids, We build the structures and rhythms of our life around what the city tells us to build our structures and lives around. And then one day we wake up and like, you know, do I even believe this Christian thing anymore? Is this even true? And the reason we get there is because we've we've listened to a, a city that has a very different way of operating in the world than the church. And it's all very subtle. Supernatural personal evil is is complex. And it's built into the rhythms and the structures, the temples of our city. And it's why when Paul wrote to Ephesus, uh, this church, a few years after he planted the church in Acts 19, when he writes to them and he gets to the end of the letter, he reminds them, almost as if he's like, remember that riot in the theater? Remember, like, that wasn't about those people. It's about some, there's something else going on. 
And he says this. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against other people, human beings. But against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That supernatural personal evil works its way into a city so that suddenly an entire city gives itself over to things that don't give us life, that don't make sense, that wear us out, that make us busy, overcommitted. And then we're all standing around in the theater, not sure like what, why we're angry, what's happening, what's going on, why we're here. But we're there. We're, we all just ended up there. <clears throat> Do you see why we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss the concept or idea of a, of a personal supernatural evil at work in our world? Right? We're not talking about little devils that make you spend five minutes on Facebook. Yeah, they, I mean, maybe, maybe. Um, <clears throat> that's not what we're talking about. Deeply complex structures and rhythms and pressures on you constantly to make decisions that aren't good for you, that aren't, aren't in the best interest of your long-term health, that make you focus on things like wealth and status and superiority. To give your life to those things, to empty yourself out to those things, only to find... You're left standing empty-handed. So what do we do? Well, Luke paints this picture of, of, of supernatural personal evil, not so that we're all like freaked out or weird, like, oh, there's a devil everywhere. Like, not that. He, he writes about it so that you can shoot, see the complete power Jesus' name has over every evil you and I will encounter in this world. Like, if you, don't miss that. Right? The sermon is not about take supernatural evil seriously because it can get you. No, the point is the name of Jesus is more powerful than anything. Right? These are not two equals battling it out because the, the dirty aprons of God's servants are more powerful than the most powerful super, supernatural evil force in the world. And that's the point of Acts 19. A city full, full of people who are riding against the church actually have no idea what they're doing and they don't know why they're there. And they don't know what they're yelling and so for us, the idea isn't, gosh, how do, we, how do we battle against this and hopefully we win? No, the idea, well, how do we participate in the triumph over evil that Jesus' name gives us? How do we participate in the victory over supernatural evil? And so I want to leave us with two thoughts as I close. And the first is, is to look for schemes and not devils. Look for schemes and not devils. And as I said, like, if, if you have an image in your mind from this sermon, from Acts 19, I hope the image will be is, is and I know this isn't always the best image, like there's a lot of problematic imagery with this, but like the, them burning all of their scrolls up, right? Like burning books isn't something we want to be about as a church, just to be clear. But like this is probably a good example. You can burn these books because they're like demonic books. And, and so that image of $6 million just burning up into flames. And what's important about that is, again, the, those are things people had invested incredible energy, passion, time, devotion to that they now see are worthless and, and they're willing to let them go. And they know they have to let them go. And there is o- the only way human beings will devote that amount of time and money and resources to things that give them nothing in return, I think, is, is the... Is con- it can be explained by a lot of things, but I think the best explanation is personal supernatural evil with schemes and designs to push us towards a life where we empty ourselves out and get nothing in return. 
And Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians when he says to that church, he says, we don't want to be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Designs, schemes, plans. That supernatural personal evil is not about convincing you to do one bad thing. It is a strategy. It is a design. And one way, like I've just seen this worked out in my own, you know, in, in, in my own life over the last, you know, 16, 17 months is ever since we learned uh, of our, our son's diagnosis is there have been moments where we've had like gotten really intense news or had a really intense appointment. And without fail, most of the time to the day, the same day we get the intense news or the intense appointment, we also have some sort of like just personal attack thrown our direction. Whereas like the first time it was like a coincidence, uh, strange. The second time, it was like angering. The third time, it was almost humorous. It was like, this is getting, like, this is actually kind of funny now. Like, I'm, ex- and, and to be, like, so our next appointment's October 1st. I just sort of expect something around there. Something weird is going to happen around October 1st uh, to, to my family. And I realize that can sound weird or conspiratorial to you. I just, it's not. I've lived it. Um, it's, it's too, they're too bound up to one another. And again, my point's not that you go home and see a devil behind every rock. That's not the point. Um, what, I, what I want you to see is that supernatural personal evil works with schemes and plans and designs. And the sooner you see it, the sooner you look for that, the sooner you keep your eyes open for that, the better you'll pray. The more you'll expect it. And so think that, like, what patterns do you see in your life? Do, do, do like, really terrible things happen to you at the same time? When certain things happen to you, right? When stress at work happens, does something else come with it? Is, it, is, is something like, do you idolize your children and, and the, you know, the, the things come in pairs? Like, just, just think that out. How, how do you see those patterns, those things living out in your own life? And so, like, the idea of the sermon is not there's little devils and red tights running around everywhere, just weird things. Like, the, the idea is that, the, like, evil is very complex and schematic and has plans. And we need to be on guard, So look for schemes, not devils first. And secondly, lastly, know Jesus, don't use Jesus. The sons of Sceva, they they try to use Jesus, right? They find his name like has some magic spell attached to it. So let's use it for our benefit and and it doesn't work. In fact, they get beaten. Like you cannot use Jesus. And we don't, we probably, my guess is no one here in this room has tried to use the name of Jesus to cast out a demon in the last few, especially if you're not a Christian, you probably haven't done that. Um, and yet we use Jesus like that, don't we? We use, we use his name like magic to get something we want to, you know, as, as an insurance policy against disaster. But you cannot use Jesus to get what you want. The invitation here is to, is to know him, right? To encounter him as a person. And one of the challenges you and I, this is, this is one of the deals of living in our culture, is that there, there, Jesus is just kind of everywhere. There's churches everywhere, and there's Jesus everywhere, and, and it can, you, can, you can feel like you know him, but you don't. Like you're, you, his name is more a magic spell you speak to get something than a person whom you want to know. And how do you know that you know Jesus? How do we know that we know Jesus and I think the answer in this passage is that there is, there is nothing you wouldn't give up to get him. That you see him for what he is. And the, the most important thing to you in your life is not your kid's success, not your career success, not your financial security or your health, but is knowing Jesus. 
It means when you walk into this church, you walk into this church to hear from and to know Jesus. When you get up in the morning, you get up to know and to walk with Jesus. When you go out into your vocation, how you spend most of your week this week, you go out to serve and to know Jesus. Your whole life is marked by knowing Jesus. And you'll give up anything to to know him, right? There's nothing more important than him. Jesus is not a spell you're going to use to get something you really want. He is what you really want. And when you know Jesus, your life is processed in prayer before him. Your life is lived out on mission for him. And your failures, like in Ephesus, are confessed before him. And when you know Jesus, you, you see him for what he is. Ultimately, supernatural power, uh, supernatural personality, it's real. We take it seriously, but we know what Jesus has done to it. And when Paul reflects on what Jesus has done to supernatural personal evil, to the demonic of this world, what he says is that Jesus took everything that would entrap and snare, try to lead you and I down a path towards hell. He's done all of he's taken all of it, he's nailed it to the cross, he's mocked it openly, put it in shame through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, so that you and I can now know life, and not just life, but life brimming over to the full with joy, so that we are not weighed down by temptation or by evil. The difference between Jesus and a life of supernatural personal evil is that, that, that evil does everything it can to empty us out and will never give us anything in return. But Jesus has emptied himself out to us so that we can be filled. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we, as we approach your throne now to worship, I pray who Jesus is would be made real to every person in this room. God, we, words can't do that. Sermons can't do that. Songs can't do that. The Spirit has to open our hearts to see the beauty and the power of Jesus who defeats the evil that seeks to ensnare us with handkerchiefs, who defeats cities that are opposed to the good news of the gospel with grace and mercy. Open our eyes to see Jesus, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.